This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Evan Novi-Williams. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Michael Barr is off this week, every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Coming up on the show, we speak with Howard Mittman, CEO of Bleacher Report. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week, starting with a big story from Bloomberg Business Week on Nick's owner, James Dolan, and not surprisingly, Eben, I would think that most readers would walk away saying, oh, Jim Dolan, he just still doesn't get it. Yeah, I think the takeaway is I'm glad I'm not a Knicks fan. Uh, <laughs> the, the the story goes, you know, pretty deep into a lot of things that, you know, people who are even casual followers of the NBA, I think, already know in that, you know, James Dolan is uh, does not like the media. And despite the fact that, you know, the team is probably the most valuable uh, and richest team in the NBA, uh, they have had virtually zero success in the, in the last 20 years. I mean, well, the new, the new that came out, and it's, it's new but it's old, is that one of our reporters went out to Long Island to a concert venue to see Dolan. And it was really for color as Jim Dolan as lead singer of J.D. and the Straight Shot. But it turned out she was there a little early. And Jim was sitting there by himself. So she went over and introduced herself, identified herself as a reporter with Bloomberg. And let's say Jim was not happy. He didn't like that. No, I mean, <laughs> but the, I mean to flip her pad closed, like this isn't the proper time, this isn't about the Knicks, a- and then had her thrown out of the venue. Called sec- walked away, called security, and had her removed from the venue. Now, this is, this is a public theater. She paid for her ticket. Jimmy doesn't own the theater. Not like it's MSG, and still had her thrown out, and the theater was like, "Well, you know, he's the headliner, and he wasn't, but so he can do that." Yeah, he's got thin skin. He's got some thin skin. This is example, you know, Z on a long list of, of of public instances where he has, you know, whether against a reporter or against a fan who is arguing, for, yelling for him to sell the team. Um, he's shown this. He's shown that side of him before. You know what I would do. And and I know Jim. I have I have dealt with Jim on a number of occasions over the years, and really haven't had any problems with Jim. What I would do is sit him down and show him the uh, George Costanza opposite episode, hmm. how everything came up roses when he did the opposite of whatever his instinctual <laughs> knee jerk response was. I I just I just don't get an I and I know he's an irascible guy. I, I know he's had demons. I get it, but. You have, you have to learn. You have to grow. You have to learn. And Jimmy can buy himself a ton of goodwill by simply, even if you disagree with somebody, simply being nice. Going back to the conversation we had last week kind of about valuations, do you think there's a chance? I mean, it, it's clear that what it means to be a New York Nick in the NBA right now is not the same thing that it maybe meant Ten years ago, the, some of the biggest free agents in the in the basketball this offseason came to New York, but they went to the Brooklyn Nets and not the New York Knicks. Is there a risk of 
the Knicks permanently losing, kind of the aura around Madison Square Garden and the aura around the New York Knicks, if we go a little bit further into this kind of 20-year slide where they're almost never in the playoffs, they've won one playoff series since 2001 um do, do you, do you the, eventually the, the lose power, that nowadays the power is with the players they can dictate they have power they decide they will go where they want to go they will go where they benefit and if they do not see this as a good culture fit for them they will not be there thus the new york knicks but we also have a story about managing money in football specifically college football and i know you love this specifically <laughs> lsu what are they doing yeah so lsu um you know one of the richest athletic departments in the country uh, has for a while now given a kind of healthy sum back from athletics to the academic side of the institution every year. Um, It was about $9.5 million a year most recently. A lot of the big schools like to prop up their athletic departments by saying we give money back. Yeah, the University of Texas gives a lot back. Um, The LSU has essentially announced that they are no longer going to do that. We're going to keep the money. (laughs) Yeah. um, New AD Scott Woodward has said, you know, it's it's, it's not advisable for us to, to do this right now. Um, Which, which I mean, I think is, you know, it's a, it's kind of a testimony of where college sports is right now as a business, right? This is LSU is one of the few fully self-sustained athletic departments in the country. Kudos to them for that. Yeah. They take no money from their students. They take no money from, the government or institutional, you know, directly, um, but you know they they have a hundred and forty five million dollar budget and and they are refusing now to give money back to the school, especially at a time, you know, when they announced that new football operations building last week. You know, we talked about you know the photos that came out about the Middleton Library, right, which has you know leaks and is it seems fairly dilapidated. Uh, in general, higher education right now is underfunded. But you pointed me, by the, the way, in the grand scheme of things, you pointed me to a very interesting story, or somebody had done a study on the effect on recruiting, and it seemed like it was minimal. Yeah, there's there's evidence out there that these you know fancy Lavish locker rooms, locker rooms yeah, high end training facilities actually don't affect recruiting. All that much, and and as we said, I think rightfully so. This is a way of this is a way of paying players without directly paying them, right? And and this might not be the way compensation that players actually want, but that's what that's what it ends up with right now, given where NCAA rules are. But you know, there are a few schools out there, and LSU was one of them that was giving kind of healthy chunks of change back to its academic side. Um, and I think it's uh, it's unfortunate that that LSU is losing that. Give me a private Olive Garden soup and salad bar inside the locker room, and I'm and I'm going to LSU. <laughs> Happy man. Let's hang around college sports locally, New Jersey. Our good old friend Rutgers University. They have a new locker room too. Not quite LSU fancy schmancy, <laughs> but pretty. Fancy, and the problem is, unlike LSU, which has a self-sustaining athletic department, the Scarlet Knights bleed red. Yeah, oh, yeah, Thank really, you. really different, <laughs> different ends of the spectrum here. Rutgers is, and and I, for all the public schools in the Power Five, the the richest school conferences in college football, you know, Rutgers is the the most subsidized program out there. They have Ouch. a hundred million dollar budget. Thirty million of that comes from either student fees direct institutional support or direct government or state support. Um, that's a huge number. You know, as we said, LSU, $145 million budget comes entirely from athletics. Rutgers, $100 million budget, 30% of that now, we comes should from point institutional out, support. For, for fairness, we should point out that this particular project was funded by a donation. This was a $4 million project, yeah, privately funded uh, from from a gift from a, from a family. Um, but, you know, there are certainly people out there who feel like 
you know, that, that the institution should be doing a better job of trying to get its athletic department at a place it a where it's look. not it's not taking, you know, twelve million dollars a year from from students and their tuition. How's that New York TV market doing in the Big from, Ten move from others? How's what? How's that New York TV market thing working <laughs> in the Big Ten move? Yeah, so you know, Rutgers is a newish member of the Big Ten. Uh, they're getting obviously a lot of money from the Big Ten. The, the, their new media deal, when it kicks in, is going to be massive. Um, but you know, Rutgers new new locker rooms, yes, but but still has a lot of work to do in terms of getting the financial situation of the athletic department uh, on on even keel. Now let's get into this week's interview with Howard Mittman. He's the CEO of Bleacher Report, which delivers sports content and real-time event coverage, serving readers around the world. Howard, thank you very much for joining us on Bloomberg Business of Sports. Thanks for having me. So you could make an argument that you know more about young kids in America than, than, than most CEOs. What should I be getting my nephew for his birthday? Not a Kit Kat. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. He just told us the story. Yeah. His kid dropped a Kit Kat at camp and then let an F bomb fly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't realize my parenting skills were going to be on display here. Um, I, as a gift, I would say gift cards seem to be the only thing that uh, that can be used out in a virtual world. Fair enough. Um, but tell us a bit about now. Now, Bleacher Report, you know, has a very young demographic. Give us a sense of kind of the audience that you guys are getting, both kind of digitally on the app and also, you know, on the web. Yeah. So at, at Bleacher. Report, we have, we have obviously Bleach Report, which is the hero brand, and then we have a, a series of portfolio brands, House of Highlights, BR Football, BR Gridiron, BR Kicks, uh, BR Hoops, and a, and a number of others amongst them um, that reach younger millennial and, and Gen Z consumers. And uh, we've built it so that we can have um, Bleach Report as the hero brand, as I mentioned, and then we have a series of uh, verticals that align up across the sports and sports culture landscape to um, appeal to different demographics and to ultimately create a a horizontal out of all those verticals inside of this sports and sports culture niche. And, and what's your? Is there an average age, roughly, of a, of a Bleacher on, Report on social user? across all our social platforms? The average age is twenty six. It mm. skews a couple years older in the app, uh, but twenty six is is about what we uh, look for. So same demographic as Major League Baseball. I was I was going to make the <laughs> baseball joke. <laughs> wait wait a minute. So what's the secret sauce? What do they want? Yeah. Uh, I think it depends on what platform, right? So what it is that um, our community wants depends on where they are. But inevitably, I think we, we run two businesses concurrently, um, which is a bit of our secret sauce. It's what we manage now and what we're building for the future. So the first business is uh, the verticals I mentioned, those portfolio brands um, across social. So we have um, you know massive social following with a number of two most engaged account across all of Twitter. It's literally Donald Trump, us, and then Ariana Grande. Um, although occasionally she gets into a Twitter beef with Katy Perry or Taylor Swift or someone. And so the, so she'll she jump can. To two. If, she, if she needs to, she can jump. There are months jump. where she hits two and where we're three. God um, forbid she get in a beef with Trump. Uh, oh, God. We'd, we'd be dead. Yeah. Uh, although anything can happen these days. So um, we, we run that business, and, and we do a, a pretty significant percentage of our revenue uh, across those social channels in a variety of ways. But can you walk people through how that works? Yeah. I mean, it's so, one thing to say, oh, across social, but how does that work? What are the, What's the content? How do they get it? And then how does it amplify? Yeah. So when we think about social, we think about that as our... Um, always on business. So the always on business is that which we have to create and provide in order to satiate the never ending desire of, of what it is that sports fans crave and care about. So I actually use the example of Bloomberg all the time. Um, 
because we are Bloomberg for sports. Think about it. You, you know, when you have the financial markets, right? It is ever changing. It is constantly evolving. There's news. There's players. There's a constant need to stay connected. It is, you know, not. It is something that is sought out. It's not found, right? It's a need versus something that just pops up in your feed. Sports is the same way. And so our social business is built to keep the modern sports fan up to date and informed about everything live time. That doesn't mean that it's reactive. A lot of what we do is planned. So as an example, Zion Williamson launches, you know, his um, global announcement where he's going with uh, Brand Jordan. We have to be prepared for all the different permutations of where he could go to have graphics and visuals and stories ready for the second that's so released. So this is sort of template journalism. You don't care then if the news breaks on your platform. You just no. need to fill the marketplace once the news is out there and fill it fast. I think it's a great question. We we do pride ourselves on breaking a fair amount of news, but uh, I'll give you an example of how this plays out where breaking news is not as important as the ability to get it out and to be able to package it and get get it in front of consumers in a way that engages. So Anthony Davis, right? Anthony Davis, you know, if you're any kind of sports fan in the world or human, I think today you know he went to the Lakers. That was a, you know, surprise to some, uh, but it was enormous news. Um Another large sports outlet got that news. Uh, one of their reporters, an amazing reporter, um, got it, pushed it out across Twitter. The whole world sees that from us to anyone else who you know you might possibly mention up to and including Bloomberg has to write a story on that. Um, we take that, we package it, we push it out across our uh, social feeds. We also push it across our app. Our app is the second business that we run. Um, we have... 20 million total downloads, and more importantly, nine and a half million consumers opted in to receive alerts. So um, another another news network breaks that news. We take that information, push it across our social networks that have three X the engagement they do, and we push it out across our app, and our alert hits first before they do. They do. So breaking the news, the value on that is limited. Your ability to take that news and push it out and get it in front of consumers and have them engage on it is what's at a premium. And at the end of the day, we did on that day, on that news, it was two things. One, it was our highest traffic day ever. And two, um, we did 50 million video views for that news, and they did 10. Hmm. So wait a minute. Are, are you doing such a great job, or is ESPN falling down? Is Jimmy Pataro going to hear this going, whoa, 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 buddy, we are we are doing something wrong here because if we have the news, we should own the news and the ripple effects from that rock hitting the water. I can't honestly tell you how anyone would take that news or not. Um, I'm I'm really impressed with what they're doing. I think he he's made great strides, and you know I just listened to a podcast he was on the other day, and I thought he was fantastic. Um, so I don't know how that would reflect on any other executive, but I can say that breaking news is a little bit less of a a big deal for us, and I think you know. Even he has spoken about House of Highlights and Bleacher Report and right. the need, the, difference, uh, the ability the, that we have to reach those younger people. And consumers. the only difference, so you brought up Bloomberg, and the only difference being our breaking news is so actionable to the investor. Yeah. I have, think, having that five, ten second head start, I, it, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. Yes. Now, today, that's true. In two years, as betting legalizes, so on average, our alerts hit 58 seconds faster than the brand you mentioned, right? So... That's a big deal. That's an eternity when when sports betting legalizes, when you're looking at in-game betting, when you're looking at odds and updates. So um, our ability to move quickly and to push that out and to have 3x the engagement they do in both social and in our app, 
those are advantages that play really well for us as sports betting legalizes and the information becomes more actionable to the sports fan. We're speaking with Howard Mittman, CEO of Bleacher Report. And, and Howard, you just brought up sports betting. Uh, we've had a number of sports media executives uh, sitting in the same chair talking about kind of the effect that their business may have now that, right. that legalized sports betting is, is, is moving across the country. You just brought up, I think, a more nuanced point than, than, than most of them have, a direct way in which the speed in which your business operates can become more effective or maybe even more important or more vital in a world in which gamblers are using the information uh, to, to place bets. Is, is that the way that you think sports gambling affects you guys the most? I think I think that's part of it. I think there's a few ways that I, I think about it now. Clearly, speed and technology and the ability to engage consumers and, and inform them with that information quickly matters. Um, I, I do honestly believe um, that we're in early days, right? And so the way that I think about it, again, I'll relate it back to Bloomberg. If you were to write a story on Ford Motor Company, it would almost be irresponsible of you to not mention the stock market and to use the data inherent in the market to be able to package up against some form of metric how that CEO is doing, how that company is doing, and, and what it is it's that you're- It's all about context. Writing, right. I think we're moving towards a world where in a couple of years' time, it will be the same for sports. It will be irresponsible for us to have this data and to write about it and to not use it in a way that um, that you would hear. And so I think on the one hand, there's clearly a speed element to it and there's a direct connection to consumers, but there's also a storytelling element to it. And I think journalistically, I'm as fascinated by that and where this goes and how we're prepping our organization to um, understand that. And that's part of the partnership that we have with Caesars and the data that we get and the data that they get and the sharing of that. Um, those are the kind of things that I'm most excited about. I, but I, I think all of us right now are, no pun intended, placing bets on what we think the future will be. And we're just going to have to sort of ride this out and see where it goes. What can you tell us about the data that you and that you and Caesars are, are kind of moving back and forth as part of that partnership? Because yeah. there's also a studio in Caesars in a, in a sports book in Las Vegas, correct? Yeah, we, ha we that's exactly right. We have a 24-7 content studio there. We have a number of premium shows that we're rolling out. We've started to integrate them into things like Inside the NBA and, and doing activations in and around you know our summer league events there uh, for the uh, jump off, which is the activation we have. Um, the, I won't get too deep into the data before I get over my skis and have somebody back in the office like crying that I didn't ask them exactly how we're using it. Um, I, I will say this. Um, on our app, the, one of the biggest advantages that we have against any other media company uh, in the world outside of, I think, Bloomberg, because again, the terminals, um, we have this advantage of having an app with in, an intensity of engagement. So, um, you know, we have nine and a half million consumers opted in, and we have a ton of first-party data. How did Think you about, acquire them? How do we acquire? Uh, How did you acquire those those nine and a half? Million? Standard means. There, there's no, you know, marketing basically, direct marketing and and word of mouth. Um, but we're starting to layer features and functionality in there now that are really exciting. We have our. Uh, our fire button, which is our version of the like button. We have comments. We're hosting AMAs inside of the app. So I'll give you an example. Um, Julian Edelman comes on, and we just push out alerts telling people Julian Edelman's coming on for an AMA. This is the second one we've done. The first was with Ron Artest around a documentary we did for, with Showtime uh, called A Quiet Storm, which if you haven't seen it is really good. Um, so we did this one with Julian Edelman, and we ended up getting on Reddit, we average when we do an AMA about 1,300 questions inside of our own app with only pushing out through our own channels for our app. We ended up getting 5,500 questions for that AMA. So 
Um, we believe the intensity of data we have, the intensity of connection we have to the fan becomes really opportunistic for a number of How much of data about your customers do you have and how to utilize it? Yeah, so we've been, um, we have a fair amount. We're, we're the, these are a lot of conversations we have internally about being responsible about that data. Uh, we're not sharing it with anyone externally. We, we, we are, um, like, for example, I can't tell you exactly what you're doing day to day, and I won't tell anyone else exactly what you're doing day to day. But I do know this, that um, the further we get down into that, we, we have started authentication. Authentication is quite different than a paid subscription. But the reason sports are inherently social. Right, and so the way that we, be, you know, move out of just being a traditional publishing app and start to become more of a, a social media network unto itself is uh, by you, by our community, inviting their friends. And so the way that you do that is through authentication. In the last nine months, we've had uh, almost three million consumers authenticate inside of the app, and so it, it it is proving out for us with some of the other features and functionality we'll be releasing through the end of the year. Um, that I think we're on to something and that consumers are willing to participate and willing to invite their friends and willing to take the love they have for sports out of just SMS or out of other social networks and pull it into Bleacher Report and start to have those conversations there. If I was an executive, I'll pick a random team, the New York Jets. Okay. Could you kind of go I'm a through? Jet fan, by the way. Yeah. Okay. So don't, don't no, I'm, insult. I'm not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. Mean. Could you go through? I, I the, that. <laughs> yeah. Could you go through the data that you guys have and and, and maybe the, the the viewership patterns or, or or what people who read Jets content are looking through and, uh, and tell me something about the team or about my fans that yes. I might not know yet? A absolutely. In fact, w one of the best examples I could give you is when we did the partnership with UEFA. Um, we. Uh, use the data we have inside of the app to better understand the uh, elements of the consumer behavior and, and then figure out really truly that there was a, a, high, a high similarity between the behavior of NBA fans and of soccer fans. Hmm. And so we use that to get a better understanding of the potential deal that we're bidding on and then how we would you know, create um, content to make that actionable for fans to spread it out so that we can convert fans of other sports over to uh, UEFA. We are chatting with Howard Mittman, CEO of Bleacher Report. What don't you have that you wish you did have? Five years ago, if you asked someone at BR that question, the answer would be a 24-7 network. You know, there, there's just a ridiculous amount of content that you can package up. There's a lot of, like, autoplay pre-roll that you can run. We, we run very little, almost no pre-roll. Kids don't like it, from what I'm told. Um, but... Yeah, five years ago, that would have been the thing we don't have. Today, um, I'm really glad that we don't have that. Um, we have BR Live, which is our OTT product. Over time, um, you'll start to see some changes to that where they come together. Um, and so in a world where live sports is is at a premium, where live sports is an you know, incredible opportunity to achieve CPM and reach a really great, um, attractive demo, two to three hours a day. That's what you yeah. get out and of much live of it, sports. And it's expensive. Right. And so what we have is um, we already have shoulder programming. We know how to entertain consumers for the other 22 hours a day, which is very different from what most of the other OTT platforms are doing, is they convert basic linear principles into a digital format. Um, as we're working with UEFA and as we're working with the NBA and as we're working with um, National Lacrosse League and the you know Arm Wrestling Federation and a whole long tail of World Surf League and others um, – we like our chances to be able to engage consumers with live sports and then also provide that platform for them where they have a reason to come back when there's not a live game on. Do we need to say hi to Nick Sakevich and Sophie Goldschmidt as well, for friends of the program, I believe they're listeners. How much 
Well, I said the brand. Do you not say brands, by the way? Do you not say competitor brands at all? Didn't say ESPN earlier. <laughs> is, it, is, that, uh, is that your thing? I, did, I didn't know if it is, and that's fine. No, it, no, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being coy. You intimidate me, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. That's it. I'm so intimidating with here on the microphone. But what's the incoming traffic look like in a world where, and I know Facebook is open to any and all partnership. Yeah. What's the incoming traffic saying, hey, I want to piggyback. I want a piece of this. How can I help my brand? How can we be synergistic here? Yeah, we we see ourselves as a platform. So we're we're you know we are an enormous traffic driver. Usually, in most instances, the number one or number two traffic driver to any of the competitive brands that you've mentioned or that you could mention. And so that that's part of our aggregation strategy and that we've had forever. What we've done a really nice job of over the last three years is build up a reasonably comprehensive and and you know well thought of uh, content business on our own. And so putting the power of those two together. Um, has been great for consumers and driven a lot of the growth to the app that you mentioned. But if you're, um, you know, if you're a competitive brand, um, I think you enjoy the traffic we get and you're okay with it. Uh, I can't speak for them. If you're a platform, um, we're spread out reasonably equally across the platforms. Although we're, I think, about eight or nine percent of our social traffic comes on Facebook uh, now. So we feel reasonably well protected against, you know, algorithms that go bump in the middle of the night. <laughs> To, to shift gears for a second, last year over Thanksgiving, you guys broadcast the Tiger versus Phil yeah. uh, golf event. You know, a one-off, one versus one, very different kind of event. You know, the gambling was integrated. The guys were mic'd up. Uh, it got a lot of people thinking about whether that was a, a, a format that could be used outside of just golf. Yeah. Uh, do you kind of see a future in in more of these things, whether it's Federer versus Nadal, pick, pick your two stars, yeah. kind of doing a one-off pay-per-view event that, 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 that people will tune in to watch? Yeah, I, I think I think we proved a lot in that. I think we, we proved to us, truthfully, that Bleacher Report could use its social channels and its app to drive a significant golf audience. We had a million viewers watching concurrently. Unfortunately, not all of them were paid. because and Those, we had those some... demos, by the way, don't, I wouldn't think, overlap. They don't, no. Um, but we... we that was interesting to us. Um, our gut intuition was that it might not work. Um, it did. Uh, we proved that consumers like those live sports moments, that, that the betting elements have the opportunity to change the landscape of how live sports evolve. There are a lot of challenges, right? You, you know, we worked with the PGA on that. Um, it, it's very difficult for these players to just go out and separate from the leagues. Um, those aren't conversations we're interested in having. There, there could be other entities that are willing to do that. I, I doubt ESPN would either. Um, so the other thing that you have to think about is like, what's the purpose of it, right? Um, you can make some money on it. The question is, is the money worth the effort? Because it's a sizable undertaking, right? Um, around all areas of the business. Uh, start with, you know, production and, and promotion and marketing and sales. And so, um, I think what we'll do is we'll continue to have some of those experiences and opportunities, um, but I think we'll start to look at them differently. And I think the as we start to uh, have live sports and experiences inside of the core Bleacher Report app over time, uh, this is not a next 12 months thing, um, I think we'll evaluate them differently, not just as consumer entertainment or advertising opportunities or just opportunities to, to drive viewership, but as marketing opportunities to drive folks to the app itself. So let your imagination run wild for a second. What's the dream scenario? Is it 
KD versus LeBron one on one is oh, it Todd Gurley uh, versus JJ Watt in an Oklahoma drill? It's it's you know Rocky Balboa versus Thunderlips. Like I think that, that would be the dream. Um, but twenty I, I, on Thunderlips. Yeah, I, I'd I'd love to see uh, Duke Kentucky. All the NBA players from Duke and all play mm. all the players from Kentucky. That that's not my idea. That's been circulated around BR for a while. Our uh, founder you know came up with that. But like yeah, that's the kind of thing I think. You know, if you have league participation, you could start to do. Who who wouldn't want to watch that in a world where where players are you know spending less time or great players sometimes spending less time in in the college ranks? Um, so when and where you can do those kind of things and take rivalries that exist already, uh, which was the beauty of Tiger Phil, they're, they're friends but they're rivals, um, and and play that out. I think that there's a, a storyline and a subplot to it that drives engagement pretty significantly. Are leagues creative or, or daring enough to to want to do an idea like that? I don't know. I, I don't I don't you have to ask them. I I do think what we're seeing now is is just massive disruption and change in and around the world of sports, right? So we exist to to serve sports fans. We we really, you know, secondarily exist to make the life of sports fans easier, right? Uh, we want to make it as easy as possible for you to follow the you know, players in the games that you love. The traditional model started with the league, went to the teams, then the players, and then the fans. And what social media has done is sort of created a point of connection to allow the players and the fans to um, speak more openly, and it's given the players a, a bigger voice and a bigger platform. And so uh, for us, we think that that evolution is one that um, allows the culture and the personality and the off-the-court you know, activities of the players to matter as much to sports fans as it is what they do on the court. And that just opens the aperture of, of who and what is defined as a sports fan. I, I go going. back to MTV Cribs. It, it was the first people wanted that glimpse. So yeah. uh, bullish or bearish then, and we got about 15, 20 seconds on The Athletic. An opt-in, pay subscription, hyper-local coverage of what you want. Um, I think it's an interesting business. I think they do great journalism. I'm in full support of anyone that wants to do great long-form content. Um, the subscription model is not one that I think can scale enough to a point where it becomes relevant to us and the way that we run our business, so I wouldn't expect us to do that. But anyone who's out there trying to make long-form journalism stick and relevant in 2019 and beyond, I, I applaud them. Although it's not a business I personally want to be in, I'll be rooting for them. All right. That's Howard Mittman, CEO of Bleacher Report. Thanks, Howard, coming in. Thanks for having me. Eben, you listen to Howard. You seem to think that they figured out what everybody else in sports media and media in general is trying to figure out. How do you get the kids to come to your platform? Uh, you got to recall, it wasn't so long ago where Bleacher Report was just sort of this aggregation of folks on the web writing whatever they wanted about content, whoever they yeah, wanted just pumping yeah you didn't even know who they were just people coming in and they were much maligned because it was it was that sort of like it seemed like an unprofessional operation and then you blink and here we are as part of the bigger pair and warner media at&t streaming things like the champions league and and it's a brand name and 
uh, bordering on sort of a, a lifestyle brand for, for people who go there for content. Yeah, so I have two takeaways, and one of them is, is kind of what you touched on right there. It's clear that Bleacher Report is kind of blending this line between being a publisher and being almost an entire social media ecosystem, right? I mean, he mentioned, you know, the AMAs that, the, that they're pushing out, you know, the comment sections, the, you know, the way they integrate on Instagram or on Twitter, House of Highlights. So much of what they're doing is, is kind of built around being an entire ecosystem for sports fans, more so than just being a place that people go to get Yeah, Woj content. drops the bomb, but the explosion happens on Bleacher. And that's the second thing. I thought that the, the example he gave about Anthony Davis was, was fascinating, yeah. right? That, that's a piece of news that Bleacher Report did not break, but because of how fast they were able to, to, to get their own content up, and B, because of how good they are at, at putting out content that people like, they were able to capitalize on that piece of news, maybe make, even better than ESPN. Does which it broke make it. sense to say that they're proactive and reactive at the same time? I think that's fair, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But that's how they've managed to aggregate such an audience. Sure. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. And Scott, we kind of talked about it before. I actually don't know if you remember. As <laughs> happens with Barr, I suggested yeah. something, but I don't uh, remember. So our, our number of the week is 32. I do remember now. Yeah. It is the uh, the expansion of the Women's World Cup. Didn't even give me a chance to say what it was. Starting in 2023, the Women's World Cup will be expanding from 24 to 32 teams. What does this mean for the pay inequity debate? I would think more teams, more money, and how, how does that fit? I mean, it's unclear. This certainly means more games, right? Yeah. So uh, the, maybe in the next round of negotiations, the, the, the property might be a little more valuable. Um this was, by most accounts, and, and certainly that 13 nothing U.S. win doesn't sticks out a lot. But Come by most a accounts, word a win, drubbing, drashing. Sure, uh, this was by most accounts the most you know the most even, the most balanced, uh, competitive women's World Cup that we've ever seen. So certainly there there is an appetite out there. I think for for getting a few more teams in. Don't forget that the men's World Cup is also expanding from 32 to 48 starting in 2026 for the World Cup that's being held here in North America. Um, good idea? Bad idea? What, what do we think here? Uh, I don't know, but I, what I will tell you is I, what I've been saying for a while. I'm waiting to see who the really smart person is that is going to aggregate women's sports, roll it all up, whether it's the women's hockey, women's soccer, take control of the entire thing, the ecosystem of women's sports that for now on one-offs is not profitable and nobody seems to find a way to work and make that work on a grand scale. I, I agree with that. Four years ago when Carly Lloyd scored those goals against Japan, it felt like a kind of a turning point for, for women's sports, especially here in America. Flash forward four more years, they win again and an even bigger kind of groundswell. No reason to think that that will dissipate or at least you know moving forward another four years it could be an even even bigger deal uh so i'm with you yeah i think the, the time is right right now uh for maybe more investment uh, into women's sport to see if you know the, the the revenue then then flows and and expansion of the women's world cup is just one of kind of a, a much larger possibility there all right sir you have been listening to bloomberg business of sports we are here every week at the same time plus online as a podcast with new episodes mondays wednesdays 
and Thursdays. I'm Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with private equity bigwig Mark Ein, invested in tennis, esports, among a number of other things. Yeah, building tennis. Let's see how he did that. You are listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Bloomberg.